You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord Jesus, in your mercies, we ask that you would gather our hearts and minds together this morning as we dive again into your word. And thank you for the Apostle Paul and the legacy that he's left us in his own apostolic ministry and and the letters that we have so treasured through the history of the church. And we thank you especially for 2 Corinthians, a letter that allows us to peer into the dynamic of Paul's own heart and mind. And I pray that today you will help us to see and to understand. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my hope today is to, to wrap up this conversation about uh, lessons of Paul's spiritual leadership that we started last week. And then I want to spend a little bit of time this morning um, in chapter 2, uh, chapter 3, and chapter 4. So that, that's my plan, and we'll see, we'll see where things go from there. But let me put the car in reverse just for a little bit. There, there are these nine principles of, of spiritual leadership, and I'm, I'm a little bit loath to talk about you know, principles of leadership. That's a, that's a term, frankly, that the Bible doesn't use all that much, um, especially when we think about our own conceptions of what it means to be a leader and imposing that onto the biblical frame. Um, but nevertheless, I think those terms are fine uh, to think about what kind of apostolic leadership does Paul demonstrate? Um, how, does Paul, um, how does Paul exert, if I can put it this way, um, his apostolic authority, and what might we learn from that when it comes to the ways in which we relate to one another even uh, in the life of Christ's church, and I think even extrapolating that out into a broader sphere as well, as well. So I think we did three or four of these last week. I have nine of them, so I'm, I'm going to repeat them quickly. Number one from last week was Paul demonstrated a readiness to forgive. If you'll remember that there was, there was some tension that was existing between Paul and this church, um, and, the, you know, the, understandably so, Paul, Paul had been somewhat wounded in this relationship, as had they. Paul demonstrates the readiness to forgive. Number two, we see that Paul demonstrates um, gratitude for uplifting news. I think this is one of those features of Paul's apostolic ministry that I find um, so human. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul we're talking about here. This, this is someone whose legacy when it comes to the canonical deposit that we have in the New Testament, his legacy has been behind most of the moments of revival in Christ's church. It's remarkable when you think about it. Um, St. Augustine was converted by doing the kind of thing that we tell people never to do you know, in, their, in our seminary education. Never just open up the Bible and say, what does God have for me today? Open it up, point to a verse. I mean, that's, we, we, we discourage that. There was a, a joke I used to hear uh, growing up about people who did that. They opened up and, and it said, um, they pointed their finger and it said, Judas hung himself. You know <laughs> and then like, well, that didn't work. And so they flipped again and they pointed to the next one. And it's, then the next verse was, now go and do likewise. Is that <laughs> um, so we don't encourage that. But, but uh, St. Augustine um, had that moment where he opened up the Bible feeling like... He, thinking that the Lord himself was telling him to do so, take up and read. And he opens up to Romans chapter 13, and it says, and put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and, and Augustine says that his eyes were opened, and he saw. And, and when, you, when you move down into the Reformation, you know that the Reformation itself had its own kind of genesis with, 
with Martin Luther's rediscovery of the epistle to the Romans and what Romans was doing. And even in the 20th century, uh, we could say that someone like Karl Barth in the middle of the heyday of, of European theological liberalism, um, Barth discovered the epistle to the Romans, and it was Romans that had as its, um, it was the kind of instigator of a new renewal within uh, orthodoxy on the European continent right before the breakout of World War II. So this is the, the Apostle Paul is a significant figure, without doubt. And yet Paul demonstrates this, uh, this need, the necessity that he has to receive um, good news. He's not bigger than that. He's not bigger than being encouraged. Um, number three, we see that Paul is courageous and he's hopeful in trying circumstances. We saw that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Um, we saw, number four, that Paul says that affliction is the church's true glory. That it's when the church suffers that that's where the church begins to mark itself as the glory of God manifests in the world. You'll remember this line that I think comes from Athanasius in the fourth century where he said it's the blood of the martyrs that's the seed of the church. So the, the martyr's blood. Bueller? Bueller? Okay, that's not me. Um, uh, number five. Number five. And now I think we're getting into newer territory. Number five, um, we see that Paul says that true ambition uh, can be pleasing to God. Now this is, this is something worth thinking about. I want to read this to you, chapter 5, verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Um, Paul is giving, a, I think, a kind of account here of what genuine ambition and aspiration can look like in the life of Christ Church. And this, I think this is complicated business. When one thinks about, how, how does one think about ambition and aspiration um, in the context of Christ Church, where Christ demonstrates for us that um, the road to leadership is a road to servanthood. It's a servant status. It's not one of a certain kind of an achievement of a, of a title that's worthy of respect. Uh, I've, I've quoted this before, but in um, uh, Karl Barth's famous evangelical theology, he says, you might have great statesmen and great lawyers. Um, in other words, when you think about the trades that are represented even in Birmingham, Alabama, we can look at certain figures and say, so-and-so is a great executive, really impressive. So-and-so is an outstanding leader, in the, and, and the list could go on and on. But Karl Barth said, but when it comes to the church, you can only have little theologians. You can only have little pastors. Um, given the enormity of the subject matter and given the character of what ministry and leadership looks like in this place. Um, so this is, a, this is a challenge, I think, when it comes to a kind of an executive mindset as it moves itself into the life of the church, as we think about what it means to have ambition and to aspire to something. Right? And Paul says here that my aspirations, my ambitions, can never be an end unto themselves. Rather, my aspirations and my ambitions have to be framed in such a way that their ultimate end and goal, their telos, is what? Pleasing God. The pleasure of God himself. The glory of God. I'm a conduit. I'm, I'm a prism that reflect, refracts light into another source. Can, can I go to another text in the Bible to, to kind of flesh this out? 
um, in James chapter 3. Um, and if you're in Second Corinthians and you want to go to James 3 with me, go write some more. And if you've got to Revelation, that was too far. This is right after Hebrews. I think about these verses quite a bit. I find them as a personal challenge, actually. This is James chapter 3, uh, verses 13 through 18. Oh, and 1 Peter, sorry. James 3, 13 through 18. Uh, James, in chapter 2, had just warned um, people about going into the teaching office in the life of the church. I talk about this with my students. Like, hey, listen, if you want to go and be a teacher and a preacher in the church, um, think twice, is what James says. Um, because people who go into that kind of ministry, um, that have a ministry of the word with their mouths, um, when, when they meet Jesus someday, James is telling us they're going to have long conversations. It's, it's, a, heavy, it's a heavy thing. Um, and then in James chapter 3, he moves again into this particular discussion about the nature of the life of our tongues. And again, th there's a reason we don't read James a lot, because James is a bit of a kick in the knee regularly. Um, and what, what does James say in James chapter 3? He said, we, we sin all, in all kinds of ways with our bodies, but the sins that we do most easily and most frequently are the sins of our mouths. And James goes on to say, if you can, con if you can control your mouth, then you can control your, your whole body. I mean, the, in other words, the mouth is the kind of conduit to the control of the whole body. It's remarkable. You know, the old line, loose lips sink ships, you know, that kind of thing. Well, I mean, the, James gets it. I mean, we know what it's like. I mean, I know myself. I mean, just the ability to have things. We've all been in this situation, haven't we, where you're, you're in some sort of social context or some conversation, and you begin to say things, and you're like, I can't get that back. You know, it's, it, just, it just keeps rolling on, right? James says controlling the mouth is, is like controlling a wild horse. It's very difficult. And then from that discussion, James moves into James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, I wanted you to see this morning in, in, in association with what Paul says about ambition. And listen to these verses, worth reflecting on a lot. Who is wise and understanding among you? So this is a question that James is raising with some regularity. If you lack wisdom, the assumption is we all do, then ask God for wisdom. He will generously pour out his wisdom on you. So then he asks the question, so who is really wise and understanding among you? This is a rhetorical question that I think is meant to bait the conscience and bring us into some kind of uh, a conversation, a kind of a, a, a live interaction with James as he raises this question. Do you think you're wise? Well, here's how we might measure that. By his good conduct, let him show his words in the meekness of wisdom. Meekness is one of these slippery words, isn't it? I mean, we tend to think of meekness corresponding uh, to sort of something pallid or weak. M meekness is not weakness. M meekness is a kind of, um, I guess the classic definition is a kind of power that's brought under control, which is very much at the heart of what James is concerned about when it comes to our mouths and our tongues. It's a certain power that's brought under control. So let him show it in the, in the, uh, uh, in the meekness of wisdom. But now he's going to show what the opposite looks like. But if you have bitter jealousy, and hear these terms, 
selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast and be false to the truth. So bitter jealousy, uh, selfish ambition. Paul's talking about a godly ambition back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that has as its aim and end the pleasure and the glory of God. Selfish ambition has as its end and its aim uh, the glory of the self. And I, uh, let's just be, I'll be frank with you this morning. Keeping those distinct from one another in the messiness of our own human hearts is not easily sorted out. There's no, there's no blue pill here that we can take and say, now my motivations and my ambitions are pure. I mean, it's, we, we live messed up and mixed up in our own hearts when it comes to our, our ambition and our aspirations. But I think what we have here in the Bible is a kind of challenge to think about these things critically and in conversation with our own hearts. That, that invitation into what we bandy about, about, around here a lot, an invitation into a continued life of repentance and reflection. Bitter jealousy. A selfish ambition in your hearts. Um, and we all know what these, these, these things kind of touch us deeply, right? Bitter jealousy. Um, what, what does bitter jealousy look like? It's, it's when someone else gets the notice and it's not us and it tears us up inside. And it's happened to every one of us in here, right? I mean, they got noticed, I didn't get noticed, or um, I was just as involved in something, but they got the recognition and I didn't. That sort of thing. It's just, it just reveals something so deep about all of us. And I'll put myself right at the head of the list. And selfish ambition, that's amb that has a kind of ambition about, about the self. Um, I, I had an interaction years ago with someone. Um, and I'll keep all of this anonymous. But it was, it, it, it was an awkward moment, right? And um, there, was a, there were conversations. You know, academics are weird people. Right, and I'm and I'm I'm with them, right? And look, <laughs> don't agree too quickly. But um, so academics are kind of strange lot. And and you know that when you go into the academic world and you um, say, for example, you're doing some sort of postgraduate degree, your your biggest concern, and, and it's so silly in retrospect, but your biggest concern is that someone's going to find your idea and run with it. And it can create a kind of what I call academic paranoia. It's, it's wild, actually. Um, and I, 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 this happened recently my, with, with someone that I know, and, and a, a publisher had mentioned to this person about um, a guy named Mark, it was, it was a different Mark, is going to be writing a book for us on this subject. And um, to make a long story short, it wasn't me, it was a different Mark, someone else that I know, but the subject was what that person was interested in writing on uh, himself. So I get this email, and it just, I mean, it is a hot email. In other words, like, we need to create intellectual space, and you have your own world, and I'll do mine, and da-da-da. I mean, it was really kind of an embarrassing moment to respond and say, J just so you know, um, duly noted everything that you said, but I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, I mean, I'm not even working on that project, da, da, da. I mean, this, and I don't, I mean, that could, the, the, those roles could have easily been reversed. We all, whatever sphere we're in, we know the challenges that, it ha that we have when it comes to ambition and aspiration. And James is telling us here, along with the Apostle Paul, that this is an ongoing conversation that we have to have with our hearts. 
Because bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, um, this, look at verse 15, that's, that's not the wisdom that comes from above. That, that's not, when we're asking God to give us wisdom because we lack it, those matters in our heart aren't the wisdom that comes from above. Matter of fact, um, James is going to get really personal here. He says, in fact, that's not from above. It's actually earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's demonic. That, that's, a, that's a heavy um, spoonful of castor oil to, to swallow right there. Right? It's that, when those things are registering, their, their, raising their heads in our hearts, selfish ambition and bitter jealousy, which we all wrestle with, James wants you to know the devil's been at work. He's at work in this. Well, look at what the opposite is. For, he goes on, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's going to be disorder and every kind of vile practice. It throws everything out of whack. But the wisdom that comes from above is first pure. And then it's peaceable. And then it's gentle. And it's open to reason. And it's full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So, back to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. True ambition, he tells us in chapter 5, verse 9 is an ambition that seeks to have as its aim the pleasure of God and, and the glory of God. And unless this comes across as overly pious or kind of too pie in the sky, I think the truth of the matter is this is a particular um, struggle that we will continually wrestle with both in the church and in our lives in the public square. But how do we think through ambition and aspiration? as it relates to being selfish ambition versus ambition that's for the glory and the pleasure of God. And I think what this draws us to and drives us to, really, and this is maybe the, the Lutheran side of me coming out, it drives us to a recognition that we need a Savior and we need to turn to Him with, with regularity. This is where the gospel has to come to us, not just once, but again and again and again. Because when those, when those species of pride bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, when they raise their heads, and they will, again, they will for me, and they will for you, I imagine. That's an invitation for you and for me to turn again to our Savior in an honest recognition of who we are and in an honest confession that we need his wisdom, not the wisdom that comes from below. And I don't think we get to, we, we do not get to escape that struggle until you breathe your last, right? That's just how it goes. Uh, okay, moving on here. I will finish these. Number six, Paul's spiritual leadership uh, demonstrates concern for members who are at the margins. In chapter 8 and chapter 9, and we won't look at these closely, but in chapter 8 and chapter 9, Paul talks about his desire to take up a collection for those who are in poverty, for those who are on the margins. In other words, Paul doesn't just pander to those who are at the center of the church's leadership structure and at the church's vibrant life. Paul's apostolic ministry casts, casts a very wide and broad net to take into view those that are on the margins as well who don't necessarily seem like they are those who are at the center. And Paul thinks it's very important to do that because that has something to do with the gospel. And by the way, just so you don't think this is a New Testament thing, we find this particular kind of dynamic at play in the Old Testament itself. There's a, there's a liberality 
There, there's a generosity that one finds in the Old Testament that's remarkable. I mean, if you have a big field, Moses wants you to know. Make sure you keep the corners of your fields um, unharvested. Why? So that those who are poor and don't have access to property and land rights like you do can come and know this is so remarkable. I mean, this is God, God knows what he's doing here, right? Two things are at play. Number one, provide for them, but allow them to get in the field and get that provision themselves to maintain what? Their own dignity. Right? So they get out there, they gather up their, the, the wheat, they go back and they do their work. You maintain dignity and you also provide opportunities for resources. That's right in the Old Testament itself. Here Paul shows a concern for those who are, who are at the margins. Number seven, number seven of our nine-piece list. Don't worry, we're going to land the plane here, don't worry. Number seven. And this is, this is an interesting one here, it's longer. We should not be eager... This is from Paul. Paul is not eager to defend himself against the attacks of others. But there are times when it is right and necessary to do so, especially when the integrity of the gospel is at stake. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, listen to what he says in verse 1. I, Paul, Myself entreat you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you. This is remarkable. Not all that impressive when face to face. But bold toward you when I'm away. In other words, and we, we know people like this too, right? I mean, Paul's like, I'm, I'm, when I'm with you, I'm probably a little bit more sheepish, but you know I can write a fierce letter. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show the boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect of us walking according to the flesh. And then Paul goes on within these two chapters here to talk about his own apostolic ministry and a defense of himself. Look at verse chapter 11. And this is, this is Paul getting embarrassed. This is you in a position where you're forced to give your credentials, and we're, we're kind of embarrassed to do so. But Paul is willing to do it. Verse 16, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I may boast just a little. And what I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. This is a really remarkable thing. I'm speaking as a fool here, but I'm going to be a fool, Paul says, for Jesus' sake. So here he goes, uh, verse 22. Are they Hebrews? He's talking about his opponents here. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? Me too. Are they servants of Christ? This is where it's like Paul's, you can just feel the agony that he has in saying this. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. And look at his little aside right here. I'm talking like I'm a madman with far greater labors. And so here Paul says, and he talks about these people back in chapter 2, he calls them peddlers of God's word. These peddlers of God's word who have selfish ambition as their aim. Right? They're, they're, they're the opposite of what Paul feels like is um, consistent and faithful apostolic ministry that seeks the pleasure of God and the glory of God. Paul says he's, he's now countering them. 
and he's comparing resumes. You think they're Israelite? So am I. You think that they're of the of offspring of Abraham? Me too. Are they servants of Jesus? I'm, I'm one even more so. And now Paul, and this, this is the part that's so interesting, Paul's going to prove that he's a better servant of Jesus than them. And the way he, was, he does it is a complete reverse of anything that we would think would be proving his apostolic worth. But listen to what he says. Are they servants of Jesus? I'm a better one. Why? I've labored longer. I've had more imprisonments than they've had. With countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes, blessed one, 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Like, who says such things? Like Odysseus, you know, redux. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at this, on the sea. This is remarkable. I was, it was like um, Ishmael and Moby Dick. You know, I was just hanging on to a plank in the middle of the sea for a day and a night. On frequent journeys. I was in dangers from rivers and robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. <laughs> That's a little subtle thing from Paul there. In toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And listen to how Paul wraps up this list of apostolic suffering. And apart from all these other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul says, I'm going to demonstrate for you my apostolic credentials. Verse 29. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? In other words, Paul says, I'm going to tell you why I have apostolic credentials. It's because my weakness has been exposed from beginning to end of my apostolic call. And I've suffered in light of this apostolic call on my life. This has nothing to do with my credentials and where I went to school. This isn't about an impressive CV or resume. What is this about? Verse 30. If I must boast, you force me to talk about myself, and I talked about my sufferings. But if I'm really going to boast, I must boast about the things that show me weak. By the way, that list there, we might read that list of sufferings in a kind of poetic, heroic way. It wouldn't have been viewed that way in Paul's day. Those would, those would have been marks of shame. He was living life as a galley slave. He was shipwrecked on, a, on, on the sea. These were not claims to fame or some kind of heroic notoriety. Paul sees all of these as demonstrations of his bona fide weakness in light of what the world sees as strength. And why does he want to show that? Verse 31. If I must boast of the things that show my weakness, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, he knows that I'm not lying. And then he gives this last little line here. It's almost like, oh, I forgot. I love this. Oh, by the way, there's one other thing. 
uh, at Damascus when under the governor of King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and I escaped his hands. He goes through this long list, then he says, and um, I, sh I, I mentioned all of my weaknesses for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ. Oh, I forgot. One time in Damascus, um, the, the governor was out to kill me, and they let me down out of a basket down the wall, and I scurried away under the cover of night. It's like, oh yeah, I forgot about that one. P.S. So we should not be eager to defend ourselves against the attack of others, but there are times when for the sake of the gospel... Uh, we have to show our integrity in light of the in light of our opponents' claims. Number eight, uh, we should be glad to suffer as God wills. We just saw this here in these chapters. And then number nine, and this is interesting here. I wanted to read these verses to you. Second Corinthians eight, sixteen through twenty-two. But thanks be to God who put into the hearts of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to go of his own accord to you. And when we, uh, with him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace. Verse 22, oh, verse 21. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. Um, you see here that the Apostle Paul talks about living life honorably and honest in the sight of the Lord and in the sight of other, of other people. And this was a verse that struck me um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 12, for our boast is this, that the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and with godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. Paul says here that spiritual leadership um, requires a certain kind of attention um, to integrity. Um, and to sincerity. Another way of thinking about this is, and again, this is a challenge, because we all know the deceptions of our own hearts. But what I think the Apostle Paul is saying here is that apostolic ministry, spiritual leadership, is a leadership that has to be related to something that's um, whole and connected, uh, not, not duplicitous. Um, I'm, I had more things I wanted to say this morning, but I'm out of time. But let me, let me close with this. And I think about this in light of myself. I think about this in light of my students. I think about this in light of our, the life of our church together. Um, it's, it's a stunning thing. And, and this is, a, this is a, a clarion call, a warning to all of us, and I will put myself at the front here, to me. It's a stunning thing, isn't it, when we find out about men and women in the leadership of Christ Church who've maintained those leadership roles for so long while le leading lives of complete duplicity. Um, and, I, and I'm not really talking about even necessarily the indiscretion here or there that, that needs to be brought under scrutiny as well. I'm not even talking about that.
I'm talking about these, and we've heard these things. Big name um, evangelical leaders. Um, names that I, I would say now and many of us would know. Um, who, not just an indiscretion here or there, but we're talking about like a decade's worth of a double life. Um, that can then, and, and the only way that can happen is if the self becomes disassociated in some way. So that my sort of ministry professional life and, and my life at home and in, with those who I'm around become disassociated in such a way that they lack wholeness and what the term that the Apostle Paul uses here is sincerity or integrity. Um, and, and we're all capable of it, myself included. We've all done it, myself included. Kind of lack of continuity between the self that then becomes disassociated so that my spiritual public life, my external gifts, become detached in some way from an internal reality. Um, I'll mention this and I'll close. But, you know, I, I was a little bit with Frank Limehouse for a long time. You know, you'd bring up the name Tim Keller to Frank Limehouse, and I remember Frank would always be like, ah, whatever, right? Um, everybody and their mother talks about Tim Keller, and because of that, I'm not, I'm not going to get on any fan bandwagon with Tim Keller. And I was a little bit like that, too, for a while. And then he came to Beeson um, a couple years ago, and he preached in our chapel. And he preached a sermon that, you know, when the, you know, when you're like, God, that was for me. Have you had those moments when you heard a sermon? That, that, that sermon was for me. I keep a CD of it in my car and just plop it in every once in a while. Because what was Keller's message? His message was right at the concern of what Paul is talking about here. And he warned our students and he warned our faculty. He, he told us, he said, I'm going to go negative with you. And what did he warn us about? The danger of confusing external gifts and giftedness. And I deal with a lot of students that are very gifted. They are, they are, they are, they're talented. They're good communicators. They're smart. They're thoughtful. These are external gifts that we see in the external realities of looking at them. But Keller warned about, about collapsing um, external gift with internal reality because those are not necessarily the same thing. And we all know multiple people who've been able to live with those things collapse in such a way that they're not, they lack integrity. I guess the bagpipes mean we're done. <laughs> I, I hope that this is heavy and heavy-handed, and I don't want it to come across that way. I, just, I want it to be a challenge for, for me and for you um, to ask for God's wisdom and His grace that our lives would be whole. They would, they would have integrity, and that only comes as an act of his grace and his wisdom. So, Lord, send us off with your, your grace and your presence, I pray, today. Um, and, Lord, we're all in need of you pouring out your wisdom and you pouring out the truths of your gospel on us to give us the gift of repentance um, so that we could live lives of integrity before you. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.